You remember that the writer to the Hebrews at the end of chapter 10 says he's concerned about these, these persecuted church shrinking back to destruction. He says, we are those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. The writer has a clear agenda. He wants his congregation to live by faith and to not shrink back in fear. That's his agenda. And so chapter 11 is one grand large illustration of what it means to live by faith. Example after example after example is set down before us. Of course, he begins, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. He has given us several examples, and and we come to Moses. Um, The last few weeks we spent on Moses, Moses' parents. We, We saw how Moses refused worldly prestige. We saw how he fled to Egypt in verse 27 and and how he endured and how did he endure. Endurance implies a chosen path of difficulty that you are tempted to forsake. After he buried that Egyptian, he fled. He, He needed a change of address, not a change of God. He still served God. Faith's eye sees what the physical eye is incapable of seeing. And so that gives us patience in trials. It gives us strength and when conflict. It gives us comfort in affliction and even support in death. Pharaoh's heart was hardened so many times, and so God sends this 10th plague of a Passover there. And verse 28, and the typology of how that points to Christ is just something altogether glorious. And then, of course, the parting of the Red Sea. And and Moses says, hold on, the armies of Pharaoh are behind us. There's a sea in front of us, but do not be afraid, he tells the people of God. And then they began to walk by faith, and God split the waters of the sea. So that brings us to all this section we're in. In our text, the writer is encouraging these people in the midst of persecution, that they would live by faith. And that means not looking to yourself, but to Christ. Looking to yourself is never going to strengthen your walk. If anything, it's just going to weaken your walk, right? Because you have no strength of your own. And if we're honest, really, on our best day, we are weak in faith. We are simple. We are double-minded. We we we. We, we realize just how small our faith is when we're confronted with a difficulty or trial. And that's why between chapters 8 and 10, the writer does a masterful job of setting forth Christ, the one in the new covenant that is our great high priest, the one that has fulfilled all the types, all the shadows from the Old Testament, the one that, that inaugurated the new covenant in his blood as we had the Lord's Supper. We, we enjoyed the cup the new covenant in his blood, and what his work secures our redemption and forgiveness of sins. You should have received an outline in your um, bulletin there, and we're going to look at this under three points. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell. Secondly, by faith, God saved Rahab. And then we're going to look at the distinction between Joshua and Rahab. So first of all, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell. And I want you to notice with me that Joshua demonstrates strong faith and commitment to the Lord. They're actually taking possession of that promised land. When the parting of the Red Sea, 
Nothing is mentioned of the 40 years in the wilderness, except for in chapter 3, what we read earlier. In other words, those 40 years was marked by unbelief and stubborn rebellion to Almighty God. And you'll remember the judgment that happened. So, on the Red Sea there, by faith, they, right? So it's pointing to the, the people, and then also here in verse 30, certainly implied, it's almost as though Joshua takes a back seat, though he is still in view. I mean, he's included in this, certainly, in the second generation here. You remember only Joshua and Caleb were the two spies that went and gave the good report when the other ten were petrified. And so that brings us to where we're at here. The first challenge Joshua has is this fortress of a city with strong walls and high walls, which, which caused the people to fear in the past. Actually, Deuteronomy 1, looking back to the previous spies' report, says this, where can we go up? Our brethren have made our hearts melt. The people are bigger and taller than we are. The cities are large and fortified to heaven. And besides that, we saw giants there. That's Deuteronomy 1, referring back to the instance of Numbers 13 and 14. So the people naturally had a fear of big cities and strong walls. And so if ever there's a time to doubt, perhaps it would be now. Joshua is, Jericho stood as a symbol of Canaan's invincible might. It was a huge obstacle. So what does he do? He sends spies. Spy out the land. See what you can find out. Only three verses are given to that. Isn't that remarkable? And, of course, somehow they end up at Rahab's house. Later, as Joshua is contemplating, in fact, turn back to Joshua chapter 5 with me. As Joshua is contemplating the, the conquer, going in to conquer Jericho, this is what he says at the end of chapter 5. There's a lot that could be said in chapters 2, 3, and 4, the memorial stones, the 12 stones placed as a memorial there in chapter 4, the circumcision that took place, and the manna ceased as they began to eat the fruit. But then, 5.13, now it came about when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man standing opposite him with the sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said, are you for us or for our adversaries. And he said, no, rather indeed. Come now as captain of the host of the Lord. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and bowed down and said to him, what has my Lord to say to his servant? Well, the captain of the Lord's host said to Joshua, remove your sandals from your feet for the place in which you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. There's this, there's this encounter that Joshua has. He sent spies. He's got some information, right? It, they're thinking and praying. A lot takes place between Joshua 2 and 6. We don't know exactly how long. But he's praying over this. And he's looking upon the city, perhaps alone, with his eyes down. And he looks up and he bows down and he's praying and he's praying. And suddenly this warrior is in front of him. It's a supernatural type of thing, and no doubt the pre-incarnate Christ. No doubt that situation parallels Moses and the burning bush. You're on holy ground. So it was made very clear. Our second sub-point, the people of God acted in 
Faith. Now, what is faith? Faith is a response to divine revelation. When God says something, if you believe it and you act upon it, that's what faith is. God revealed, brethren, to the people of God then that the Red Sea would part, go forward. You, you will walk as though on dry land. God revealed that he would bring the walls of Jericho down and, 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 and it prescribes this in a very strange battle plan, as it were. But let me ask you this. Should we expect seas to part for us when we say so? Should we expect walls to crumble down this next Saturday at Planned Parenthood? Should we have all the believers circle around Planned Parenthood and then shout and and demand that the walls fall down? No, we've not been promised that in the new covenant. We, We don't have any revelation that the Taliban in Afghanistan will fail if we do X, Y, Z. It's not revealed to us. The same thing is true of of thinking that you can demand perfect health or financial freedom and these types of things. How about this? God will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able because God is faithful. And with the temptation, he'll provide a way of escape. That's a promise we can claim by faith, right? Right? He'll never leave you or forsake you. That's one that could be really comforting to us. So why did the second generation, the faithful generation, along with Joshua, circle this this behemoth of a city with strong walls for seven days? Very simply, because God said it. They were walking in obedience. So we were called to obey God even when it doesn't make sense. That's the bottom line. Walking around a city, marching around, it just doesn't make sense at all to any battle plan. Augustine has said, faith is to believe what we do not see, and the reward of faith is to see what we believe. So there in uh, Joshua chapter 6, we see here in verse 2, The Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and the valiant warriors. You shall march around the city, all the men of war, circling the city once, and you shall do so for six days. Also, seven priests shall carry seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. Then on the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and then the priests shall blow their trumpets. And it shall be when they make that loud, long blast with the ram's horn. And when you hear the sound of the trumpet, and all the people shout with a great shout, and the walls of the city will fall down flat, and the people will go up, every man straight ahead. Joshua gives orders, take the, the Ark of the Covenant, get the priest, prepare for battle. This battle plan is one of the most unheard of battle plans ever in the history of the world, right? It just makes completely no sense. An enemy is conquered by force, right? By, by, by ramming walls and bombardment and scaling ladders and ropes and smashing with battering rams at the gates. No doubt the inhabitants of the city, as Israel marched around from the top of the walls, looked down, 
What are they doing down there? You can almost picture it. The Bible doesn't say that, but no doubt they're, they're laughing because of the folly, the apparent folly. And then to add to this, look at chapter, verse uh, 10 of chapter 6. It actually says this, And Joshua commanded the people, saying, You shall not shout, nor let your voice be heard, let, or nor let a word proceed out of your mouth until I tell you to shout. For six days they're going around and it's shh, shh, no talking, no talking aloud. Utter silence until that seventh day of a shout with the decibels, perhaps that God used for those walls to crumble. Think about it. Thirteen times this young generation had the opportunity to look at the size of those walls, perhaps warriors perched around the top, to, to contemplate, is this plan really going to work? Can you see how they could be given to doubt? What about you when circumstances seem to be the complete opposite of your desired income outcome? We can, we can often doubt Well, it tells us in 6.15, Then on the seventh day they arose early at the dawning of the day, and they marched around the city in the same manner seven times. Only on that day they marched around the city seven times. And on the seventh time, when the priests blew the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And then, of course, the walls crumble, and he tells them not to take anything under the ban, but go in and destroy everything. Everything is to be wiped out. When the trumpet sounded, those walls really did collapse. They obeyed the Lord. The Lord said, I'm giving you the city. And they obeyed the Lord down to the finest detail. Uh, Joshua wasn't saying, let me modify this plan. On the seventh day, I'll maybe have some warriors do this or that. No, just obedience. Faith, trust in God, obedience with what he said. Spurgeon says, faith and obedience are bound up in the same bundle. He that obeys God, trusts God. He that trusts God, obeys God. Very simple. So that was the voice of faith. It was a voice of outward expression of the Israelites, an inward confidence of the power of God. It was supernatural. And brethren, That destruction of Jericho, that unexpected destruction, I should say unexpected by the inhabitants, is a picture of final judgment that is coming to this world. Jesus Christ is coming again. There will be a final judgment in this world. Jericho was wicked and an idolatrous place and under God's wrath. Look at our world. There's wickedness. There's injustice. There's abuses all around, and it's under God's wrath. You see, Jericho had six days, really, to repent, right? I mean, they they could have begged for mercy or whatever, but they did not. And so, too, our Lord tarries. He's so patient with us, and he tarries. Every living thing was destroyed and burnt with fire in Jericho, and so, too, that is the way it will be with the inhabitants of this world. Do you believe God's God's word that all earthly kingdoms in this world will be leveled, will be destroyed, the pride of man will be 
humbled. All of the wicked will be cast into the lake of fire. Thirdly, under this head, God's word brings down the walls of unbelief and error. You see, we're not to engage in warfare with swords and guns, but with truth, the truth of God's word, the new covenant. In the new covenant, our victory is not military jihads and crusades and all of this thing, but rather we go into battle with the truth. Listen to the apostle Paul. For the weapons of our warfare are not the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. For we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking captive every thought to the obedience of Christ. It's the word of God that brings down the strongholds of error and false doctrine and all of these types of things. Would you rather see physical walls falling or spiritual strongholds crumbling under the power of the word of God? What I'm talking about, supernatural regeneration, being born again. When one is born again, there's new life that has been breathed into them. Each one of us was blind to the truth of the gospel until that day of regeneration. Until that day when God saved us and removed the blinders that we could see. I was once blind, but now I see. We heard three glorious testimonies just some weeks back in those baptisms of those three women who gave testimony that they were once blind, but now they see. They testified of the triune God invading their lives and transforming their lives. God willing, in two weeks, we'll hear two more glorious testimonies along those same lines. See, God's word brings down the walls of unbelief and the walls of error and false doctrine. And so, the message to the hearers here that the writer's trying to get across God is faithful to his promises. He promised Joshua he would give him Jericho. And by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down. They must live lives of faithful obedience unto their God as well. Well, let's move on. So the second generation, the Exodus of the Exodus generation, demonstrates great faith with Joshua. Secondly, by faith, God saved Rahab. Rahab's faith is amazing. The Hall of Faith examples began with godly Abel back in verse 4, right, of chapter 11, and it ends surprisingly with this prostitute. Rahab and Sarah are the only two women that are mentioned in the whole list of the prestigious list of heroes in Hebrews 11. This is one of the reasons how we know that the Bible is a divine book. You see, if we were writing in it and we were going to have one family be saved, it would be maybe the mayor of Jericho or some, some prestigious leader and his family. But this is how we know this is not a human book. What does God choose? God chooses the most unlikely person, right? The one that would be near the bottom of our list of who we would write in if we were writing the narrative, it's a divine book, and it magnifies the grace of God. God is pleased to save the vile and the wicked. He, he loves them so much. She had three things against her. Number one, she's a woman, right? That's, in those days, that, that was a strike against you. Number two, she was a foreigner. She was a Gentile. She was, she was a Canaanite, as it were. Number three, she was a prostitute. 
I mean, this is, this is, this is God's amazing grace. Now, go back to chapter 2. I, I want to read her testimony of faith to you again. It's phenomenal, an awesome profession of faith. Beginning in verse 9, or verse 8. Now, before you lay down... She, Before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the terror has fallen on us and all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard, Joshua 2.10, we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt And what you did to those two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, Shihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And we heard it, and our hearts melted, and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven and on the earth and beneath. She gives a glorious profession of faith. She had heard all of those things that had happened 40 years ago, the parting of the Red Sea. That's still ringing in their ears, right? There is a God that's supernatural, not like our idols that that can't do anything, right? William Lane says this, Her faith, which was orientated towards the future, was then demonstrated by her welcoming the spies and protecting them. She was prepared to assume present peril for the sake of future salvation. She knew she put her life on the line. She was willing to die trusting in this God who she had put her hope and trust. She is grafted into the the covenant people of God then. She dwells with them. But beyond that, she's in the genealogy of Christ. I mean, come on. It's enough that a woman and a foreigner and a prostitute is listed in the hall of faith, but now you're saying my Savior was born back through her? I mean, you can't make this stuff up. (laughs) You just can't. It's just amazing. Rahab the harlot is in the Christmas story. Have you ever thought about that? She put off her immorality and prostitution and used her body and femininity unto the honor of the Lord. What do I mean by that? Rahab got married. She settled down. Who did she marry? Salmon, right? Rahab and Salmon is the mother of Boaz, who married another foreigner, Ruth the Moabitess, right? And then they have a son, Obed, who is King David's grandfather. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that marvelous? We see in the genealogy of Christ even, and in Hebrews 11, the hall of faith, not a line of merit, right, but one of marvelous grace. Jesus told the religious leaders of his day, In Matthew 21, 31, he said to them, Truly I say to you that tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. Boy, is that not a warning to those that are pharisaical, to those that think they got it all figured out, to those that are self-righteous and think they can discern everything, to those that lack humility. Is that not a warning 
but tax collectors and prostitutes who humble themselves. Think of Luke 7, when that woman comes and she hears of Jesus Christ and she's weeping and she's, she's washing his feet with her hair. And Simon says, obviously he doesn't know who this is. This is a paraphrase because we don't have time to turn there, right? It's just a glorious picture of God's grace. It's just amazing to think that Joshua, he sends the spies to the home of, or to Jericho. They end up at the home. And the text says in Hebrews that she welcomed them in peace. What she did was extremely dangerous and very risky and furthermore unpatriotic to her own people. But yet she did it. She couldn't, she couldn't have just stuck with her people, but instead she put her hope in the fact that God is merciful. We don't have time to go into all this. She asked, please spare my family, my brothers, my sister, my mom, and my dad, and this whole scarlet thread. Scarlet thread. Boy, there's volumes that have been written with a symbol of that and what that means and all the different things. But I think two things come to mind. I mean, the text doesn't tell us, but two things come to mind. One is that Passover, right? That Passover, what did they do? They applied blood of that sinless lamb to the doorpost so the angel of death would pass over. There's, you know, a, a type of that certainly here. All the warriors would pass over the apartment that had that scarlet thread, but also the blood of Christ that covers us and cleanses us from all sins. And those two things are very much related. Christ is the fulfillment of that Passover lamb. Well, secondly, Rahab uh, is a reminder that God saves by his grace through faith. The Bible mentions and emphasizes, you would think that maybe in the New Testament, at least, we wouldn't refer to Rahab as the harlot anymore. Can we just say Rahab, the husband of Salmon or something like that? But the Bible goes out of its way to remind us from where this woman came from and the amazing grace of which she has been saved. The Greek word is pornea. It's, an, it's like the, and it's an immoral. It's where we get pornography. She was a pagan. She was marked out for destruction. But Rahab had the kind of faith that pleased God. Look at chapter 11 in our text. For without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. James says in the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so is faith without works dead. One man has said faith and works are like the light and heat of a candle. They cannot be separated. Now, we're absolutely justified by faith, right? It's not our works that saves us at all. But a justified faith will not be alone. We're saved by justification, by faith alone in our justification, but that, that faith is never alone. It's accompanied by works that prove, and her faith was expressed by how she protected those spies' lives. Rahab did not perish. Um, it, the, the text says there that by faith, Rahab did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she welcomed them in peace, those who were disobedient, marked out for destruction. It's such a picture of the gospel, faith in Jesus Christ, 
protects from divine judgment. It does. But lack of faith does not. Unbelief sends one to an eternal misery. Those that would continue to reject God. I've got it figured out. I don't believe this book. Have a very sad and painful eternity in hell. The gospel is just so free. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. Why would anyone stiff arm such warm invitations? I'll tell you why. Because we have wicked hearts. Wicked hearts that want to run from the light. We prefer darkness rather than light. Well, Joshua 6, 24, it says they burned the city with fire and all that was in it. However, Rahab the harlot and her father's household and all that she had, Joshua spared. And she lived in the midst of Israel to this day, for she hid the messengers whom Joshua had sent. She was enveloped into the covenant people of God. Let's look very quickly at the third point here, brief, the distinction between Joshua and Abra, er, and Rahab. Um, the writer to the Hebrews has ended his list of examples, and the pair of Joshua and Rahab could not be further opposite. On the one hand, they're, they're very different. Joshua is an exemplar of Israel. He's a man of God. He's the captain of the army. He would spend so much time with Moses who would come down in glowing face and actually went into the presence of God with Moses. He was Israel's leader. While Rahab was a woman, a foreigner, and a prostitute. However, the very thing they had in common was that they believed in the Lord with all of their hearts. They, they had faith in the promises of God, and they trusted in God's power to save. That's what they had in common. Is Joshua a hero? Absolutely. I mean, he's one of the two spies, him and Caleb, that came back with a good report. He's the commander of the Lord's army. But Rahab, what a contrast to Rahab. Augustus' top lady, one who authored Rock of Ages, Cleft for Me, says, It is the peculiar business of faith's eye to see in the dark. It's an amazing thing to think about how God uses the foolish things of this world. I'm reminded of 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 26. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen the things which are not so that he may nullify the things that are. Why, Paul, why have you done this? So that no one may boast before God, the text goes on to say. God could save anyone. Remember the question that I asked you at the beginning, is there anybody that's beyond God's grace? Is there anyone that's beyond that? God can save anyone. Even a murderer who we have been interacting with for six years in Donovan Prison who's been radically transformed by the grace of God and wants to serve him with every fiber of his being. God can save 
anyone. I look in the mirror. God saved me. What a miracle, right? And you should as well. God can save anyone. But I have a word for maybe someone that's here that feels like they're, but you don't understand. My situation's different, right? I am beyond God's grace. I've, I've shunned him too many times for too many years. There's no way God could save me. Is that you? Am I describing you? That's pride. That is pride. And let me tell you what else it is. You think that your sin is greater than God's grace. You see that? You think your sin is more powerful than God's grace. You, you're, you're thinking of a God that is so small when actually we, we love the hymns, grace that is greater than all of my sin. You need to get this right. God's grace is so much greater than your sin and maybe even current enslavement to sin. We'll sing in a moment, marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured where the blood of the Lamb was spilt. Let me ask you, do you have saving faith? Have you experienced what Rahab the prostitute experienced? Have you been transformed by the grace of God? You've got to see yourself as a sinner in need of God's grace. Too many people think that they're good apart from the imputed righteousness of Christ. Faith comes in a response to God's word. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. On this point, we have an incredible advantage over Rahab. Rahab had heard about this God. She had heard about Yahweh that broke the sea, that that split the sea. There's traveling merchants that would come by. Have you heard what Yahweh's done again? She had an incomplete Bible at best. And she feared God and believed We've got the entire word of God, the completed canon, in our very hands. The message we hear is not just of judgment, but one of love and salvation. You know the verse, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. The text goes on to say, but some men love darkness rather than light, and they will be judged. Furthermore, God doesn't just save us to do whatever we want. We're to take up our cross. We're to follow him. We're soldiers in the Lord's army seeking to honor and glorify him. And the world is in opposition to us, to the original readers. They were rejected and hated and slandered by their fellow countrymen and by the Romans. And so, too, the world is hostile with the church, the church of Christ. You take the badge of Christian, you're going to suffer in some form, in some way. The world is more evil and hostile towards our faith We've got COVID vaccine mandates. We've got persecution against the church. We've got those people that want to have the right to say what goes into their body. 
largely many Christians, but not all. There's some pastors that are actually advocating on their Twitter feeds and from their pulpit that if you don't take the vaccine, you're not loving your neighbor and you're in sin. I can't believe that. We'll set that aside for now. Another application is once you're saved, to be used for God's glory. What did Rahab do? We don't know exactly what spiritual gifts she had, but she gave birth, right? And she's in that lineage of Christ. By all indications, she lived a God-fearing life and honored him. What about you once you're saved? You see, God has called us to use our spiritual gifts. We just talked about that a few weeks back from Romans chapter 12. We're not just to come and to be spectators and then leave, to be involved in each other's lives, to be involved throughout the week where there's a true kindred spirit of love. You see, it's not great talents that God uses. Maybe some of you aren't involved because I don't have any great talents. It's not great talents that he uses. But we who rely on the Holy Spirit, who gives us joy and strength to have joy in serving God, God is pleased to magnify and empower you. We walk by faith, not by sight. Well, maybe we consider these, (laughs) in some way, just uh, polar opposite examples, right? But let us be amazed at the marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds all of our sin and guilt. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness, and even answering our prayers to remove the technical difficulties. And uh, Lord, we pray that we would be thinking about these things even this day. And for any who are outside of Christ, Lord, we pray that you would give them no peace, no rest until they run to you, that they would just throw the white flag, as it were, and, and give up and humble themselves before you, the one true God. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his precious work. We thank you for his intercession even now on our behalf. Lord, may we be a people that reflect this transformed life, that loosen our lips, that we can share this good news with others. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.